If you guys are doing well this morning, if you're new, my name is Todd, one of the pastors here. We do most of the teaching and preaching here in Ankeny. Welcome to our 1030 service. Really glad you're here. Today is week four of a mini-series that we started, um, well, four weeks ago, right? Uh, it's called Winning the War Within. It's part of our larger series in James called Shoe Leather Theology. And what we've been doing in this mini-series is contrasting pride and humility and examining ways that pride gets into our life and the areas in which it can kind of creep in and been trying to teach, here's how we can fight that and embrace humility. Well, today is week four of that, and what I want to do is actually answer the question to start. Can we do that? Because when you see a title, Winning the War Within, I hope you're asking yourself, well, how do you win the war within? Let me give you all four weeks in a nutshell, 12 words. Ready? Guard what you say, watch how you plan, know who to trust. Let me say it again to you. You can win the war within, or at least you can fight well this war within, as you guard what you say, watch how you plan, and know who to trust. In fact, I would say that is actually James 4, 7 through about chapter 5, verse 6. He talks about our speech. You'll like this alliteration here. He talks about our speech, our schedules, and our stuff. Okay? So again, I say to you, how do we win the war within that's described in 4, 1 through 6? How do we fight well? We guard what we say, watch how we plan, and know who to trust. So the question this morning in 5, 1 to 6 is this. Who are we trusting or what are we trusting? With that question in mind, find James 5, would you? Verses 1 through 6. We're going to focus our attention there and talk about who or what we're trusting. So let me ask you, who you do trust? And I'll give you some options, okay? I'll give you four. Ready? You can trust God, Washington, Lincoln, or Tubman. That's the new 20, you know. Keeping up, right? Now, really, that's not four choices, is it? That's actually two. You can trust, according to the passage we're looking at today, at least, you can trust God or, say it with me, money. And James addresses that very fact in these six verses. And that's why he begins in verse 1 by simply saying, Come now, you, what's the next word? Rich. Now, you immediately are trying to say, Hey, that's not me, I'm out of this message. (laughs) Okay? But the truth is, uh, all of us have our needs met and more. And based on the historical context of James, I would say none of us are in the situation these dispersed believers were in. We're not without our homes. We're not displaced geographically. We've not been bankrupt from our jobs. We've not been cheated out of a day's wage. So most of us probably would have to admit, you know what, I have more than what I need, so how can this passage speak to me? So we're going to examine this passage today and and see if it will show us about how to trust God and not fall prey to trusting riches, all right? Now, what I want to do today is this. Let me give you kind of a roadmap. I want to kind of examine the text somewhat briefly and and let you see the four sins that James uh, highlights in regards to how they use their money. But I want to make the application through four corresponding questions I'll ask you. So today, don't text in questions. 
I'm not going to take a one. I'm going to give you the questions, okay? But I'll give you a, a gracious favor. You don't have to answer this out loud in front of other people, okay? You can answer to yourself privately. But I kind of want to talk about the four sins. I'll ask you four questions, and then we'll wrap up by seeing some other verses as well about this topic. So let's examine verses 5, 1 through 6. Excuse me, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to use this new camera we got this week and show you kind of how uh, I go about some Bible study. Maybe you can mark in your Bible as well. It will probably help some of you as well as we kind of examine the verses and see the sins talked about here. Let's look at verse 1 for a moment, can we? He actually speaks here to the rich. He says they're to weep and howl for the miseries coming upon them. Do you see that in verse 1? Notice something here. This word misery, I'm going to circle it. It is the word for calamity. You might even have the sense of a reversal of fortune. In other words, here are the rich people who are misusing their money, and they're actually going to experience what they think other people are going through. This is why he says you should weep and how. Connect the word weep back to verse 9 of chapter 4. It's the same word. So this shows me something. This set of verses... While it's aimed at people in the church, no doubt, it has three effects. This verse that says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. It's aimed at these dispersed believers, but there's three effects to it. First of all, it is a, uh, a call to repentance to those in the church who are rich and misusing their money, all right? Those who are guilty of these sins in the church. It's also a comfort, watch this, a comfort to those in the church who are being oppressed by those who are misusing their money. You'll see what I mean as we gather and get into this. Uh, and then it's also a warning to infiltrators in the church who have come into the church to this gathering of dispersed believers trying to find cheap labor and to take advantage of God's people. Now, it's important that I give you a historical setting again. Remember, this is believers who have left Jerusalem. James was their former pastor. They're now dispersed in other parts of that area. Many of them lost their homes, their jobs. They had their money taken out of persecution against their stance and identity with Christ. And so they've, they're now living in new areas. They're having to make new friends. Many of these areas are filled with many more pagans. These pagans own land. They may be the employers. And so what they're finding is that they can get a job, but often this job is... It's really, really low income. It's uh, unfair wages because they're trying to take it, the pagans are taking advantage of the believers. Uh, they have nowhere to live a lot of times. They're trying to maybe purchase a house or get land to build a house. But in the very process of doing that, these very landowners take them to court and through injustice and perversion, they twist the system to not only short the workers of pay, but they get the property back. The whole thing is just very difficult for the Christians in this church and some of those folks are actually infiltrating the church. So this warning written to the church can have various effects. It's a comfort, yes. It's also a call to repentance, but it's also a warning. Okay? This is why James would say, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's, he's given a, a future tense here kind of, of warning that if you continue in this lifestyle of misusing your money, God will reverse the situation. He'll bring upon you calamity, misfortune, judgment even. Now, is it judgment against rich people? Or is it judgment against people who use riches wrongly? Do you get the point? So let's just be clear here something. 
This is not a judgment or a, a passage that is dogging money. Do you know that? In fact, as you'll see in your Lighthouse Guide, money is an amoral issue. Did you know that? It's not right or wrong. It's non-moral. The way we use it, however, determines suddenly whether we fit in this passage or not. So this morning as we walk through these sins and then the corresponding questions, I suspect we're going to really skate on some thin ice at times. We're going to really get close to you. We'll probably end up going to get right in your face or we're going to press hard on your chest. Don't get up and walk out. Don't close your ears or shut your heart. Let the Lord use His Word to just kind of analyze and help you evaluate who do you trust. Because, like we've learned in this whole context, money is one of those ways where pride can creep in and we find ourselves suddenly thinking more of ourselves than we ought to. So here are the sins that James says were committed by the rich people, whether they were in the church or whether they were infiltrating the church as wolves, looking like sheep. Here's what he says. First of all, verse 2, Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Notice all the words there that are referring to their materialistic uh, uh, things, their, their monetary gatherings, such as riches. You see that there. Your garments, your gold, your silver. He says they're corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. They will eat your flesh like fire. I mean, he, he paints a picture here of, of someone having lots of things that's never being put to use, and so it's just rotting, decaying, it's corroding, and one day those very things will be evidence to say, you know what, all you did was hoard things, you never used them. He says that's unacceptable because, watch what he says in the last phrase, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Do you see that phrase, last days? Now what's he saying there? Is he saying that you've laid up treasure and because you've hoarded things, it's your last day? God's coming to bring this calamity on you? Or is he saying that it is the last days for all of us, so why in the world are you hoarding things? I think he's saying the latter. He's saying, guys, don't you know it is the last days? In other words, the the return of Christ is imminent. Any day Christ could come back. Peter echoed this in Acts 2 at Pentecost, which these Jews were probably at that event, by the way. It's the last days, so why would you, look at the phrase here, lay up treasure. Why would you just keep filling up your barns and never using them for good when it's the last days. Put your wealth, put your treasure to use. In other words, watch this, church, listen. Be a channel, not a collector. In fact, that's why God gives you things, stuff, resources, wealth. It's to use. I think, biblically, first and foremost, For the family God's given you. Several of the epistles talk about that if a man does not provide for his home, he's worse than an infidel. And by the way, that would extend beyond your immediate family. Children have a responsibility to their parents. And you could play that scenario out. So we're not talking here about biblical saving or about biblically using your stuff for the right people. We're talking about collecting beyond what you need to do what you need to do and just letting it sit around. It's not helping anyone then, is it? That's called hoarding. James here says that is a sin. To have stuff just sitting around, to be collecting purposelessly. So you can feel better about yourself, I guess, or just so you can brag or be proud. He said, James says, that will bring misery in the judgment of God. The second sin here is one of 
defrauding people. You could use the word fraud. You see it there circled. It's verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. Again, these were pagan landowners more than likely. They were hiring day laborers and they would say, hey, come work in my field today. I'll give you X amount of money in return for working today. But then they would keep back those wages. And James says here, those very wages are crying out against you. So if you're wondering if money talks, it does. In fact, money screams. It screams at you when you, when you use it to defraud someone else. It says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. By the way, the word uh, phrase there, Lord of hosts, that's his military name. Do you know that? So when, when he says, the harvesters that you're defrauding, you're promising to pay them a day's wage and you don't, their cries are reaching God's ears. And by the way, at some point, God, who's the commander of the Lord of hosts, in other words, the armies of heaven are going to be rallied, to defend his children. No wonder he would say in verse 1, you should weep and howl. Misery's on the way. (laughs) And you don't want to mess with the captain of the Lord of hosts. So fraud here is happening. So there's hoarding, there's fraud, and uh, uh, refusal to pay what you promised. Verse 5 is the third sin listed. You have lived on the earth in luxury. Look at these two descriptive words, luxury, self-indulgence, And then the idea of fattening your hearts in the day of slaughter. What's he talking about here? He's not talking about enjoyment. He's talking about excess. All right? In fact, let me just prove this by the word fattened. I I love, this is my favorite of the sins. Well, that didn't come out right, did it? This is my favorite description of the sins. Because the picture is of a cow grazing in a pasture and so he eats grass and he continues to eat grass and he eats grass. What does a cow do all day? I mean, what a life, right? You eat your life away, and farmers love that. Why? Because the cow gets what? Fatter and fatter, and then in the end, he dies, and we get a better steak. We get a better hamburger. Is that right? But the cow knows nothing. He is oblivious to this fact. Man, this is a great pasture. The farmer's saying, yeah, and we can't wait for you to get fat. We're going to kill you. He's talking here about unboundaried excess. And he's saying, you know what? You have so much stuff and you have so much luxury that is not being put to use. It's purposeless. It's just building your pride. And what you don't realize is it's actually strangling your soul. You're drowning in your own stuff. It's very convicting, isn't it? So the sin here is that of excess. Again, I'll say more later. Don't think that God condemns enjoyment. God has given us all things freely to enjoy. But God here, through James, is saying excess is wrong. And then lastly, he says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is probably the person referenced in verse 4. In fact, you might could draw a line between the word person in verse 6. When it says the laborers who mowed connect those two. Now, some would believe the person here refers to Christ. I don't hold that view. You might find a few commentators who believe that. I think what he's simply saying here that, that you take this laborer that you won't even pay his wage to, and then you take him to court, you subvert the system, you bribe a judge, you twist justice so that 
you not only get to keep the money you owe him, you get to keep the things he's actually working for, like land or maybe to build a house. See, the word condemn there is actually a judicial word. It was a word used in that culture in courtroom cases. I think he's talking about taking innocent people to court that you actually owe money to. In this case here, they owed money to them, and yet they still sued them to get every other thing they could bleed out of them, which is why he uses the word murder there. Do you see verse 6? Is that symbolic? Is it literal? I'll let you take your guess. I think it means this, that you have cheated them out of their wages, and then you take them to court and you twist justice, and so all they're looking at is like, you know what? This will be the death of me. I have no money to buy food. I'm losing my land. I'm losing my house. The end of this is nothing but death. I can't resist you. I don't have the resources or the stature in this new area of geography they were living. No connections. I mean, they had nothing. So they couldn't resist, even legally. So the word here, I would say, would be injustice. Using their money to create avenues where they could get their way in an unjust fashion, it was only benefiting them. So these four sins, watch this now, you ought to number them. These four sins are all, all these things are why, watch this, miseries. Connect all four of those things to miseries. And he says, if these are the sins that you're committing with your money, you should be aware God's going to turn that on you one day. There'll be a reversal of fortunes. And so in light of the fact that that's what's coming, the judgment of God is coming on folks who use the money that way, you should weep and howl. That's the only time in the New Testament the word howl is used. I mean, do you get the intense picture here? He is calling for repentance on the part of those who are using money wrongfully. He's warning those who are using money wrongfully that if they don't repent, God God will take care of His children who are being oppressed. But it's also a comfort that if you're one of these righteous persons, if you're one of the laborers who cannot ever seem to get justice done, don't worry God's got your back. Now, we'll explain next week how verse 7 fits into this. When he says, be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. We'll get there, all right? So that's how we know that the laborer and the righteous person is vindicated. But for now, he's simply warning those who are committing the sins. He's calling for them to repent from hoarding, defrauding, excess and injustice. So what we've seen in this text, before we take the four questions, is this. Just like in our speech, remember chapter 4, verses uh, 11 and 12, about judging brothers and speaking correctly? Just as in our speech, and just as in our planning. Here's the take-home truth for today. Money reveals who we trust, doesn't it? James says in our planning, to say, Lord willing... James says in our speech not to think we're better than the law. So in this case, and I'll show you the sentence on the screen behind me, he's saying in your use of money, don't think that you're the ultimate one in control. Don't use it selfishly. Don't trust in it. Instead, trust humbly in God. Can we go to that sentence, Jill? We'll take it off the Bible screen here and we'll look at this take-home truth just for a moment. You might want to jot this down so you can kind of remember it. This is really what he's saying here. It just fits in the flow of the verses. It kind of fits the context that just like the way we use words and how we plan, how we use money reveals who we trust, proudly in riches or humbly in God. And anything other than humble trust in God will leave us spiritually bankrupt. We'll be guilty, and God will bring the misery upon us, okay? 
Now, this is a, this is a very um, in-your-face kind of passage. How do we take a passage written to rich people who were misusing their resources in the first century and jump 20 centuries forward to today? How in the world do we accomplish that task to where we too are under the Bible's authority and, and understanding its application and meaning? What, how do we do that? Well, here are four questions that I think will help us. So I want to ask you four questions. They respond to the four sins. I want you to think about them. I want to admit to you that some of what I'll say in these questions is going to be personal opinion, all right? Some of it will be biblical instruction and command. I don't know that I'll say to you every time, here's an opinion, here's a command. I don't know that I'll be able to do that because I'm going to walk you through some things that I think are all helpful. I'm going to trust you and the Holy Spirit to kind of know in your life where this is all going to kind of land and filter out. But I want to walk you through four questions that will help us in the church evaluate who do we trust, God or money? Here's the first question. Am I using money selfishly or generously? In fact, would you say the word generous with me? Did you know that God wants you to be a generous disciple? God wants you to live a generous lifestyle. He wants you to be a channel. He wants things to flow through you, not just to you. He doesn't want you to just collect and build bigger barns. He wants you to use things to help people. So he gives things so that they flow through you, not just to you. That means we must make generosity an aim. So let me ask you a question. And I want you to be honest with yourself. Don't answer your life, but I want you to think honestly. This is not just a, a sub-question to fill time. Are you aiming, do you have your life pointed at being a generous person? Do you think about how you can be a channel? How you can use things to help others? Is generosity something that, you know what, that's a trait I really desire to develop? I believe it should be, and so let me give you some tips slash commands to help with that, all right? Wade through these as you wish, but I'm going to talk to you some from the Bible and some from my experience about pursuing generosity. First of all, I think it's wise as you think about giving of your resources, and by this I mean, in this case, your, your monetary wealth. Shoot for 10% or more. Now, I have some reasoning for that. Let me explain myself. Why do I say 10% or more? Because I tend to think that people who give at least 10%, now watch this phrase. I learned this from someone in the last two weeks. Uh, people who give at least 10%, I tend to think they feel it. And I don't think scriptural giving should be something that we're unaware of. It should be something we do in faith, the Bible says, right? Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So can giving just be something that you, you line item in your budget like your Netflix bill, your restaurant money, tithe, giving, yeah, I don't even know when they come out. They just come out. I'm not even aware of it, man. I'm in no need. It's no big deal. I don't know if that's really scriptural giving because it seems to me that sacrificial giving in the New Testament, it was something that when they gave, they, watch this, they felt it. They knew it. Like, they just were aware that, wow, that I'm giving and I'm now having to trust God to take care of my needs. Okay? Now, there's some... 
You've got to have some balance here, but I'm just kind of bringing some things your way. I think 10% is a good mark to start at where you would begin to feel like, wow, I'm, I'm giving sacrificially. Most of us could live on 90%, and if you can't, you ought to try. I think it would be a good way to, to begin to trust God. Some can give more. They should. Now, is 10% required in the Bible? I think it was in the Old Testament. I don't think it is required any longer. Now, you may disagree with that and feel like, no, Todd, I believe a tithe is a command, and I wouldn't argue with you on that. We'll shake hands, be brothers, love each other as a spiritual family, no problem. I think that all the law was fulfilled and completed in Christ. I do think the New Testament calls for, for sacrificial giving, however, which personally is probably way more than 10%. Now, how do I know that or say that? My opinion is that if we really gave as they did in the Old Testament, we'd probably give about 20 to 23%. If you add up all the ways that the Old Testament followers of Yahweh were to give, there were tithes of various things, but if you added them all up, it actually equaled 20 to 23% of their total, we'll call it net worth. That may actually be the most biblical number you're looking for, <laughs> Okay. Now, here's what I'm saying. I don't think the number, the percentage is what we're after. It's the heart that we're after. So ask yourself, where is that place where I can feel like, man, this giving is sacrificial, so I'm going to trust God. Where is that place for you? I tend to think 10% is a good place to start. If you start there, you'll feel it, and then just keep working your way up to some generosity. I think that's very biblical, all right? Here's another tip for you. Seek ways to be consistent. Often, we're generous when we have extra. That's not wrong, but generosity also should continue even when things perhaps are tight. Have you ever noticed how some people are quick to give to God until they get uh, in a tough spot? They're like, well, I'm not going to give to God this month. Like, he's the first person to take the hit? (laughs) How does that work, right? But I think consistency is part of generosity, which is why... And I will tell you here on opinion level, I like online giving. Did you know that? And in fact, some of you would say, well, Todd, if it's that automated, you can't feel it. You don't know it. I would disagree. Every Sunday morning, I get a notice. Thanks for your gift to First Family Church. The amount's there. And I realize, oh, that's right. This week, I have to trust God. It's, uh, it's a good reminder for me. Even though it's automated, it helps the church stay consistent. Helps the church stay on track with its partners across the globe and its ministries here locally. And yet I'm aware, okay, this is not just a, you know, another item like you know, the cable bill. This is something specific that, that I want to make sure I'm sacrificial in and consistent in. I'd encourage all of you to think about this. Go to your CCB profile. Consider giving online. It's a great way to have consistent generosity. Now, some of you say this, so you're like, well, Todd, I don't think that's real worship. They didn't do that in the New Testament. We should bring our money to church. Well, I'll just remind you, they didn't have checks in the New Testament either. So a lot of times we like our traditions because they're our traditions. In fact, there are some folks here who don't know what a check is. You know that? I say checkbook and you're 30, 28. You might say, what's a checkbook? I mean, everything's done digitally. Everything's electronic. I'm just saying that before you criticize a certain method which is designed to help consistency and generosity, your own method actually may be new compared to the New Testament, right? So before you criticize and analyze in an unhealthy way, just say, hey, 
Could this be a, a way that we could increase consistency, whether it's online or... And some folks say this, well, I'm always forgetting my checkbook. I'm always forgetting to bring my offering. That would, that would solve this. And it does help the church in months when people travel, other times of the year, to stay consistent as well. So I would encourage you, generosity, here's some suggestions. Shoot for 10% or more. Seek to be consistent. Look for ways that will increase your consistency. And then I'd say this as well. Embrace spontaneous moments to give extra. You see, I think generosity is often tested in moments where we have to kind of dig a little deeper. It's not the only test, but it may be one of the ways you find out, am I truly generous? Now, what some people do is this. We reallocate our generosity. All right? I told you I was going to get close to you, pressing your chest, stepping your toes. I'm doing that right now. You ready? So we... um, we have a normal amount we give to our church. We give through the church to God. We talk about those kind of things. They're in our position paper on giving. You can access that on our website. There'll be a link on the Facebook page. So you ought to check out our paper on giving. But we follow that. You do that. And then suddenly someone decides, well, I'm going to go. I'm going on a mission trip. Or we hear about a need from a, another family member or a friend. And we say, oh, I want to help that. So we reallocate what we give to church to our local body. We just reallocate that somewhere else. Doesn't really affect you, right? It's the same amount for you each month. But really what you're doing is you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You've not actually added generosity. You've not taken the moment to be more generous. You just simply reallocated your generosity. And I would say to you, I would rethink that a little bit. So we have a Utah fundraiser here. We all eat barbecue. That's awesome. We love that. But I would encourage you, don't just say, well, instead of dropping my offering into the basket, I'll just put it in the Utah fund. That's great for Utah. It's not great for the church. Can I say that to you honestly and practically? Same thing would be true for Australia's book, rate, a book fundraiser coming up, our trip to India, uh, your, uh, the trip to um, the ones we're taking this summer. In other words, don't think that, well, I'm just going to reallocate it. Generosity often is embracing spontaneous moments to give extra. And I would just challenge you to think through your generosity. Because when we find ourselves just reallocating, sometimes we're not as quick to respond in the moment to what God is needing beyond what we're already doing. So think about your generosity. Embrace spontaneous moments to give extra. Seek ways to be consistent. Shoot for 10% or more. And then lastly, I'd say, be sure to learn what the Bible teaches about giving and generosity. This is all under this first question. Am I using money selfishly or generously? Learn what the Bible teaches. We have a position paper on giving. I would encourage you to go read it. It's quite theological and it's quite logical. It's doctrinal, using both the Old and New Testaments to teach what we believe about giving, why we hold the stance we do on tithing, and why we think giving to and through your church is the best and first way to give up your resources. It's explained in there. Go read it. Learn. Because a lot of times, people, if they're not careful, they'll be defending statements. They'll be defending positions of which they really know nothing about. And I would challenge you, before you get defensive right now about your giving, about what you think about giving, do you know what the Bible teaches about giving? Go study, learn, and come under the Bible's authority on the subject of generosity, all right? So this is the first question. Am I using money selfishly or generously? Aim for generosity. Second question. Am I using money or am I making money 
deceitfully or honestly? Am I making money deceitfully or honestly? Now, as I thought about this verse on defrauding people of their wages, I thought, wow, how in the world does this apply? How can I break this out? And You know, the point obviously is honesty, keeping your word and honoring your promises. But in some of my normal reading, I, I stumbled across this application by Don Sanukian. It's way better than I could ever think of, all right? I'm just going to read you what he wrote. It's quite convicting. It's really good. Some of you have this book on James. Here's how he applies this singular verse. Listen very carefully. He says, make sure there's nothing in our bank account that belongs to someone else. No money we've gained and kept at the expense of others. This is the idea of fraud. Look what he says here now. No churning of investment portfolios just for the commissions without adding value to the investor. No unnecessary phone calls or useless paperwork just to create, quote-unquote, billable hours. No one that we've fired in their 50s so we can hire someone younger at a lower salary and lower health cost. No one that we've let go just before their pension became vested or qualified so that we don't have to pay out benefits. No prescribing unnecessary medical tests just because we get a percentage of the lab income. No long-standing unpaid bills to mechanics or doctors and the like. No personal loans from friends that we've delayed paying back. No selling of generators at three times their value when hurricanes or floods have knocked out electric power. No personal bankruptcies that left our creditors holding the bag, and we're not trying to make good on that. We guard our hearts by knowing that there's nothing in our bank account that rightfully belongs to another no money we've gained or kept at the expense of others. That's, that's good. So you may read these verses and think, well, that doesn't apply to me. Really? Think through those things, whether you're an employer or an employee, and are you being honest in how you make your money? Or are you hiding some of that? Third question for you. Am I enjoying it obliviously or wisely? Now, notice what I ask here. I ask about enjoying what God has given us, and I believe we should and we can. But what we can't do is enjoy things obliviously because this verse, this idea of excess, it says that that's the moment we become fattened for the slaughter. Are you with me? So I would encourage you, Enjoy God's gracious gift with boundaries. Learn parameters in the, in, the, in the good things God gives you. Here's an example, and I want to be careful here, I, I, um, but this is how God uses in my own life. I know where my excess tendencies lie. I know where they are, and I would venture to say you know where yours are, right? Uh, Chris writes in this week's study guide that he could walk into a camera store and feel like the, the, the urge to excess. I wouldn't feel that at all. But I walk to the Apple store and I see the demons, okay? <laughs> I feel the monster, all right? So because of that, I'll think of several years ago, perhaps, I said, I'm not sure how long, but I said to you, I don't want an Apple Watch. I'm not going to get one. I used an illustration and I, I was not going to get one. Even though I really wanted one, it was an area to say, you know what? I don't, I don't need that. I don't need to feed that monster anymore. 
I actually bought one, took it back, tried some other ones, and just finally ended up saying, you know what, I, I, I don't, I really, this would be just me just saying yes to a craving, I don't need it. And then, in June of that year, I got one as a gift. Now, I have no guilt about that gift. Did you know that? I wear it, I like it, I enjoy it. And yet, I feel like I addressed an area of excess in my life by being, trying to say no to that. Does that make sense? So I'm rowing a boat with you. Yours may be with things like clothing, vintage cars, food, scrapbooking, anything you see on Pinterest. Uh, I mean, anything you think, well, I've got to have more of that. I've got to get that. You can name any item you want, camera lenses. Um, the, the point is, do you have to have everything you think you want? The answer to that is what? No. Does that mean getting something is wrong? What's the answer? No. The real question is the heart, which is why this is not a passage against the moral issue of money. It's a passage about using money wisely or destructively. And sometimes, if all we do is get anything our hearts desire, the moment it desires it, we're just strangling our souls with stuff. Watch out for what I call stuff suicide. Thinking you have to have it. You're just grazing in the, in the pasture of, of your desires. Excess. But what you're really doing is you're just feeding yourself without any constraint. And it's going to be the demise of yourself. Learn, learn to implement what I call boundaried enjoyment. All right? So God's been gracious to me, all of you, I'm sure. Whether you think he has or not, where you live and the fact that it's here in this country and the things you enjoy, I mean, all of us think it's tight, but the truth is none of us really have it that tight. So let's enjoy what God's given us and then put some proper parameters to guard our hearts from excess, Okay? Last question. Am I leveraging money manipulatively or beneficially? In other words, do you try to twist systems and corrupt people, get an inside track? Do you try to do things with your money so that in the end, everyone else takes a hit, but you get the win? Are you always thinking of how it can, first and foremost, increase your pocket or other times you can leverage your money for the good of others without having to be the recipient of any of its rewards this again is a very hard applicational area this question the second one just they they force us to deal with things that we're not really experienced at but i will remind you of one situation that brought this home for me perhaps the holy spirit will use it to enlighten you in, in some way as well few years ago our church purchased land we paid for it we were going to build new on that land some of you are here and you remember that uh god redirected our steps to this beautifully designed old functional warehouse i love it by the way i think it's one of the best decisions we made we saved a good bit of money we have a great space for our community 
Um, we have some things we're working on still. We'll address. We'll deal with those. But I think overall, it's the best decision to keep our humility in the right place, our pride low, our contentment high. I'm thankful to God for this building. Okay, I am. I think it's uh, his, his his clear leading. But we were stuck still, so to speak, with this property. I remember in the elders' meeting, we're thinking, okay, we've got the building. What are we going to do with this property? And it crossed our minds. Well, let's just hold on to it. I mean, property is one of the best investments. We keep it five, ten years. It could be worth double. We sell it. Man, that's a, that'd be great. Now, is that a good investment strategy for a businessman who's not, who's not a nonprofit? Probably so. But is it right for a nonprofit organization who gets a, the privilege of not paying property tax? Our city government says that if you're a church, you don't have to pay property tax. Would it be wise and right for us to sit on land that the city could actually have a business on and earn their money and the business earn their money too? In other words, they could profit from that in the right way. Would it be right to sit on that land for multiple years knowing that all we're trying to do is just make money on it? We're never going to build anyway. Would that be right? I don't think so. And in that meeting, one of our elders said, you know, guys, I don't think we should probably sit on that. And we talked about it. They said, if we do, let's do this. Let's figure out what it would have been worth if a business landed there. And let's give that money to the city. But we don't want to shortchange the city from the honest way they make their money just because we have the, a, a system by which we could twist and manipulate leverage to our benefit. Does that make sense? And I tell you, you may never have heard that story. I don't know if you'll ever hear it again. We don't share a lot of things from those kind of meetings. But in those kinds of meetings are the kinds of meetings that lock my feet into this place because it says, it says you know what? There are godly men surrounding this church that are they're protecting our integrity. They want to be above reproach. And so you know what we did? We sold the land straightway. I don't think we hardly made any money on it, to be honest with you. But our goal was not to try to make a bunch of money. Our goal was to do the right thing. Now, I'm not speaking against churches that may do that. That's their call. I don't think it's the wisest move. And I'd be the best thing above reproach. But every situation can be different. All I know is for us, we felt like it would have been an unwise, an unjust way to utilize the system because of our privileged um, status as a nonprofit. We don't pay property tax. So we went ahead and just sold. Does that make sense, guys? I hope you'll think about that. It's a hard verse to apply, but bribing judges, using your money to influence processes, trying to get an inside track with people, trying to let your money speak louder than perhaps what you want it to or what, what maybe it could and should, all those things play into this verse of which we're actually twisting things so that the righteous person has no way to resist us and we get our way in the end. So are you using and leveraging money manipulative or beneficially? These are four questions you need to think about, all right? Again, these four questions lean into that take-home truth that how we use money reveals who we trust. Do we trust humbly in God or proudly in riches? Okay? Now, I will admit to you, these are tough questions. This is some intense these are intense verses. But we don't get to skip James 5, 1 to 6, do we? So here it is laid out before us. Four sins, four corresponding questions. Let me close with, with this simple exhortation to you. Don't be distracted, okay? 
One of the things I pray for you on a regular basis, usually every week, is this here. I pray that God will give you good and right success. I want you to know this. I have a um, collection of, it's like a half sheet. All of our church members' names are on there. I pray through that. And I won't go into all those details, except to say that one of the things I pray for you is that God will give you good and right success. I have many reasons for praying that, okay? One is I want you to do well for your family. I do. I don't think that's evil or wrong or, or bad. I want you to do well for your family. I want you to do well for God's kingdom. I, th- I want you to do well so you can be generous. Do you know that? I mean, one of the ways that, that God allows and one of the ways he uses to, to make disciples of all nations is money. And I pray that God will give you good and right success so you can be generous. But more than that, even though I pray regularly, God, just favor that family. Help their business to go well or that their employment stays strong or that they're, they're, they work hard. Give them promotions, open doors, raises, however you want to word that. I pray this. God, do not give them that success at the expense of their sanctification. Don't let them trade their soul for money. For what would it gain? What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his own soul? See, I want more for you. What I want more for you beyond good and right success is godly, righteous sanctification. Can they exist together? I sure hope so, amen? Nothing wrong with that. But if there were to be a choice, I don't want you to be so deceived by riches that you say no to God and trusting Him and that you try to cling on to something that's fleeting and passing and is actually a noose if you try to trust it. You see, I would rather pastor a church full of godly, humble sheep who may be financially broke (laughs) than proud, selfish wolves who have lots of money. That's why I bring this text to you. That's why we preach about it. So in light of our desire to make sure we use money rightly, that we enjoy all good things and that we have God's perspective about it. Can we take a few moments and just look at a few other passages? I just want you to read them with me that talk about the issue of money, all right? We'll let this be our central focus. I'll bring in some corollary verses now to weigh in on this and then we'll pray. But here's some other verses that might have uniquely, and we'll use the phrase maybe ironic, connections to this topic today, all right? I'll read a few of them. Uh, We'll go through them somewhat quickly. Then I'll have you read maybe the last three or four together, okay? Here's some to begin with. Proverbs 11, 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. It's good news, isn't it? Yet it puts things in perspective. Maybe you want to jot these references down, read them later. You may watch the video later or hear the audio and you can kind of get them that way as well. But these are some good cross-references. Next one, Proverbs 23. 
Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. That's a great one about excess, isn't it? When your eyes light on it, it is gone. Money talks, doesn't it? We said that it screams, it says goodbye, it does all kinds of things, doesn't it? For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's why we don't trust it. Here's one from Matthew 6. Will you read this with me? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you can argue all day about that. You can have your what, if, ands, or buts. But Christ was quite clear. Read the last phrase with me, would you again? You? you cannot serve God and money. You can't trust God and riches. If you trust riches, weep and howl, judgment's coming. If you trust God, hallelujah. He'll teach you and show you how to use those very things for His purposes as a channel and not as a collector. Let's read a few more, can we? Here's Luke eight fourteen, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Interesting here, isn't it? One of the reasons many people never get beyond, I'll call it first base in their spiritual walk, their sanctification, their maturity, is because of all the stuff they're trying to hold on to. <laughs> instead of clinging to Christ. Let's read another verse here. Read with me, would you? 1 Timothy 6 together. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. What does he say here? Is it... Money that actually brings about the desires that are harmful and the senseless things that happen? No, it's the desire to be rich. So again, it's about the heart. It's about our, 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 uh, our, our, who we trust in that, what we crave and want, what we place as our king. Let's keep reading. Here's a poetic uh, reference to money from the book of Job. Quite interesting. Read this with me. If I have made gold my trust called fine gold my confidence? If I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For I would have been false to God above. A few more verses here. From Luke 12, the story of the man who was the classic hoarder. Look what happened to him. Say it with me. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You've heard that for years, haven't you? But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? One more, can we? Actually, two more. 1 Timothy 6 here, verse 17. Read with me. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which is the best of the bunch. Together, ready? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's the hard truth. After reading James 5, 1 to 6 and understanding about our physical resources, here's the real hard truth I want you to grasp. You actually are already rich. God in Christ has blessed you with amazing wealth that will last for eternity. It may not show in your bank account. It may not show in your portfolio. Your financial ledger may not show this kind of wealth. But can I say to you that on the cross, Jesus Christ took every single bit of your debt and he credited you with all of his righteousness. You are extremely wealthy. By God's grace, you are beyond a millionaire. (laughs) In fact, you're more than a conqueror, Paul said. What are you? You are an heir. And what is an heir? An heir is someone who gets all the benefits and never does any of the work. It's a son. You're entitled to everything that's the father's, but simply because you're in the family. Man, what a privilege. That's you. You're wealthy, guys. So that type of actual wealth should affect how we approach our temporary wealth. Our true riches should really affect this time we have some earthly pleasures and material possessions. So much so that we use them wisely, beneficially. We're not hoarding or defrauding. We're not accessing. Instead, we're giving, earning, controlling, and then letting our money help. We can embrace this kind of life. You know why? Because Jesus Christ has already made us rich in the Father's eyes. Let's pray together, shall we?